Well, it's a privilege to be here. Um, I've really appreciated uh, Paul's ministry. Uh, anytime I visit it, I just, my heart is warmed whenever I hear a preacher preaching with such depth from the Word of God and pointed. But my heart's even more warm because my family attends here. My dad and stepmom, Bruce and Kathy Valancourt. So I'm just very thankful for the ministry here. I hope you appreciate your pastor. I hope you see you have something unique here that not everyone has access to. Um, Whenever a man of God opens the word of God with that kind of depth, think of decades and decades of being under that kind of ministry. What a blessing it is. So it's a privilege to serve here right now. Let's just quickly close our eyes and ask God's blessing on our time opening up his word. Father, we thank you so much for the great grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. I pray that right now, in this time, you would send your Holy Spirit and that he would spot, put a spotlight on Jesus Christ so that our hearts would be inclined toward him, so that whatever we are bringing to church today, whatever burdens we are bearing, whatever joys and sorrows, that it would be in light of this great hope. I pray for any who are here and exploring the gospel, please open their hearts to receive Christ. I pray for um, anyone who knows Christ that there'd be a great deepening and that our lives would be shepherded by your word right now. Thank you, Father, that as we open the Bible, we find the living word of the living God who breathed out these words for us. Please guide us in truth. Please pierce our hearts with these truths. Shape our lives with them. Let our vision of who you are be deepened and transformed, and let this be the lens through which we walk through all of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my friend Dan had been ministering to drug dealers in some of Toronto's toughest neighborhoods for 14 years. Now, Dan is a skinny white guy who makes me look like the Incredible Hulk. And God had given him a connection with these black, young thugs who carried guns and shot each other. It was something. He worked a day job to pay the bills, and he devoted the rest of his life to ministry. He would just go and meet with these guys and talk to them one-on-one. He started a Bible study. He called it his ghetto Bible study, and they would come, and it was ghetto. Um, The furniture was all secondhand, Value Village type stuff, and these guys had come he told me a story of taking them on a retreat, uh, not a retreat, a getaway to a cottage, and these guys who were feared in the street were like little kids because they didn't know what to do with lakes and boats and all this stuff. He said it was amazing. They treated me like their dad. So he just devoted his life to this ministry for 14 years, and then an opportunity came up. A trained professional was willing to help Dan start his own business so that he could employ and train these young kids who were getting saved through his ministry and so that they would have a way out of the life that they were born into living in these projects in Toronto. So 
Dan quit his job. He had a good job, and he quit it. He used all of his savings, poured it into this business, and began to train this, these youth he ministered to in, in renovations. Weeks passed, months passed, and something was wrong. The short version of the story is this. The trained professional was a con man. He took Dan for all his savings. All those youth didn't get paid for all the learning they did. And Dan lost everything. He was forced to work minimum wage in a factory, all kinds of hours just to make ends meet and support himself. He almost had to give up his ministry to at-risk youth. Why do bad things happen to faithful Christians? I have a feeling I don't have to do much convincing to kind of prompt you to say, this is a practical question to bring to the Bible. Why do bad things happen to faithful Christians? Why does God allow faithful Christians to suffer? Okay, we're living in a global pandemic. We're wearing masks. Faithful Christians have lost family, friends, jobs. I know someone, mid-30s, on a ventilator in ICU right now because of COVID. A pastor, even. He's a youth pastor. My colleague's husband. Even aside from a pandemic, we live in a world of suffering. What did God pray for? He prayed for people who are struggling with medical struggles, financial struggles, family struggles. We're not immune. Faithful Christians are not immune to suffering. We could, ask, we, could, we could ask a general question today, why is there suffering in the world? But today we're going to narrow the lens, we're going to look at the suffering of God's people, and we're going to ask that one question, why does God allow faithful Christians to suffer? And as we ask that question, we're going to turn to the book of Job, we're going to meet a man who was godly and who suffered unimaginable grief. So, with a little help from a pastor named Mark Dever, as I was doing my research, he had four points to outline Job. I said, man, I'm taking those. I'm giving him credit. That's, that's all I'll say. But um, the rest is my research. But anyway, we're going to walk through the book of Job, and we're going to return to our question at the end. Why does God allow faithful Christians to suffer? As we walk through the book of Job, we're going to see four points Job's trials, Job's anguish, Job's friends, and Job's God. Job's trials, Job's anguish, Job's friends, and Job's God. So let's begin with Job's trials, and they're found in chapter 1 and 2 of the book. Usually, by the way, when I preach, um, I camp out in one passage of Scripture. It's usually longer than 42 chapters. It's usually shorter than 42 chapters, whole book. And I'll say, open your Bible and look here. But this is a big, we're going to look through the whole book of Job. It's going to be up there. So whenever I read a scripture, I'm going to flag it, and they're going to put it up there for us, okay? So as, think of Job's trials, chapter 1 and 2. As the book of Job begins, we simply meet the man Job. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 
3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Okay, so Job lived in Uz, and we do not know where Uz was, as it were. Archaeologists, scholars, we just don't know. We do know that it was in the East, and that tells us it was outside of the land of Israel. We also don't know when he lived. We're not told in the book when Job lived, but because there's no mention of coin money, and there's also no mention of priests to offer sacrifices, he probably lived at a similar time as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's our best guess. Now, the most important truths about Job were these. He was very godly, and he was very rich. He was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil, and he had the immense riches. And do you notice his, his, you know, his, his, his TFSA was in the form of hooves? How many hooves do you have? Okay. And he was the greatest, most powerful man in that area of the world and he was godly. As chapter 1 continues, we learn that Job offered just-in-case offerings for his ten kids. He was serious about blood atonement for sin. In just in case my sin, my kids sin, I want them to be right with God. So, beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, we're, be, we're given insight into something amazing. The heavenly throne room of God. Notice how the scene changes. We've, we're set up with, here's who Job is. He's this great, godly guy. And then the scene changes, and we are kind of zapped into the he- heavenly throne room of God. And what we're reminded of in chapter 1, verse 6 and following, is that there's an unseen spiritual world full of what the Bible calls principalities, powers, the heavenly host. Um, We often call them angels. The Bible calls them angels. Um, You you know, the Bible calls the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh Tzavot, Yahweh of hosts. Well, this is the host he is Lord of. And in in Job 1 and 2, there's these two scenes where the host of angels and then the wicked Satan barge onto the scene you know, Satan barges onto the scene as an outsider, and they all present themselves before God. And in these chapters, we are given a vision that Job never received. Okay, so we as readers of Job see Job's life and suffering, and we also see the heavenly throne room of God. But Job as a man is just living life. He doesn't see that heavenly throne room scene. Okay, and So we read, starting at chapter 1, verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, notice three key things about the scene. First, the Lord points Job out to Satan. He points out specifically Job's righteousness and fear of God. In the unseen spiritual world, God receives glory for Job's righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Second, Satan has to ask God's permission to do any evil. In other words, Satan can do nothing unless God permits him. Third, God basically says to Satan, this far and no farther. You're on a leash. You think you're free? You're not. You know the dog that runs and thinks he's free and, you know, that's Satan. Okay? You can do these things and these things and these things, but you can't take his life. God is in complete control over Satan. He just chooses to let the leash out a little bit. Now, the scene that follows is horrific. Enemies kill Job's servants and stole his livestock. All ten of his children were in a house. Violent wind comes, collapses the house. They all died at once. In a day, Job lost all of his power, all of his wealth, and all of his children. And then in chapter 2, he will lose his health and the support of his wife. He's gone from absolute riches to absolute poverty in a day. Now, from a human perspective, Sabean and Chaldean are enemies, killed servants, stole livestock. From a human perspective, a natural disaster claimed the lives of Job's children, but we as readers have been given a peek into the heavenly throne room, right? We've seen what happened. Satan was behind all of these evils, and God gave him permission. As, as chapter 1 closes, we learn that Job also had this perspective. He didn't have the peek into the heavenly throne room of God, but he did have this perspective of God in control of all things. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Reminds me of the Crowder song. 
Good God Almighty, I hope you'll find me praising your name no matter what comes. None of us know how we're going to react in this kind of moment. Job enters into mourning. The cultural signs in those days were torn robes and shaved head. What does he do? He falls to the ground and worships. God, you've given me good things, and now you've taken them away. May your name be praised. I hope you'll find me praising your name no matter what comes. Now, just to emphasize, Job's response is right, that God was the giver and taker. Notice that the author of the book of Job adds a little note. Look at verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That's a little commentary on Job's responses. Sometimes you read a story and you don't know, should I follow their example or not? Well, the, uh, the author of Job is saying, this is a righteous example. Okay, so chapter 1 and 2, God has won the wager with Satan. Job continues in righteous worship even when all this is taken from him. Second point is Job's anguish, and that's found in Job 3, Job's anguish. So seven days pass, the shock begins to wear off, the pain of the disease wears away at Job, okay? It is one thing to worship God in a moment of loss. It's quite another to endure in joy when all is still gone, health wears away, and days and weeks and months pass, right? At this point, anguish starts to set in for Job. And we have his recorded words. They begin, chapter 3. I'm going to read a whole smattering. They're up there. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. Why? What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Here we meet a man in despair. He wishes he had not survived childbirth. Why? Because he wouldn't be suffering like he is now. Now, we could say a lot here, but we only have a few minutes. For now, just notice this, okay? It is possible to be a man or woman of God and experience deep depression and despair in the midst of suffering. You see, these aren't the flippant words of a man who's stuck in traffic, who's going to be late for work. This is a man who lives with the reality of loss and physical agony every day. If you feel this way at times, you're not alone. Third, Job's friends. Now, the Job's friends section stretches from chapter 4 to 37. Big section. We're going to summarize, thankfully. Now, these chapters record dialogue between Job and his friends, okay? So, 
There's three cycles of dialogue. First, Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. That happens three times. That cycle happens three times. And then as the section closes, a younger man named Elihu speaks. And Elihu is a young man who knows everything. You ever met one of those? (laughs) These are three friends who intend to offer words of wisdom to Job, but all they do is harm him. The worst thing about their words is they're partly true. So as Job's sitting there, there's a ring of truth to it. And since there's a ring of truth to what they say, it would have been even harder to bear. And what do I discern is right and wrong and all this stuff? The sum total of their counsels found in chapter 4, verse 7. They say, consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? What are they saying? They're basically saying this. You must have some hidden evil that God is punishing you for. Repent, and God will bless you. What's going on here? These people have a really simplistic view of the book of Proverbs. You know, you turn to Proverbs. Proverbs is just that. Proverbs, they're proverbial. They're not what happens all the time in every situation. They're, here's the patterns that are set forth. Often, godly behavior results in blessing. But you know what? Another wisdom book in the Bible is Job. And why is the book, why is the book of Job in the Bible? To show us that people can take that Proverbs teaching too far and say, well, if you're suffering, you must be some hidden evil in your life that you need punishment for. See, these people make it a rule instead of a pattern, but that's just not the case. But Job's response to these friends, as it wears on him day after day, and as he keeps hearing this kind of true but not really true stuff, is not 100% innocent. It's Look at chapter 32, verse 1. So, these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. That's a little summary of what's going on. Chapter 4 to 37 of the book of Job is a human attempt from the perspective of four men and Job to make sense of Job's suffering. Again, they don't have the perspective of the heavenly throne room of God, right? We have that perspective as readers. And again, we read this and think, these people are idiots. Why don't they get it? But then we go out and live life, and how do we respond? And that's why it's a blessing to have the Bible, isn't it? So although the words of Job and his friends have partial truths in them, they ultimately fall short. So fourth, and our final point is this, Job's God, found in chapters 38 to 42. See, it's only after all that happens, Job's trials that happen and the two scenes of the heavenly throne room, Job's anguish as he's just heaving in agony about all the loss and the pain and the relational separation, Job's kind of over and over with these friends and not really true stuff, God finally speaks. 
Now, to the suffering believer, we might think still small voice of comfort. That's what that's what will come. That's not what comes. Instead, God speaks out of the whirlwind. That doesn't sound very gentle, does it? Here's an example sampling of what he says. 38 verses 2 to 3. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Now, what follows is one of the longest speeches of God in the entire Bible. Now, remember again, Job doesn't know about Satan approaching God in the heavenly court. And he's been enduring unimaginable anguish with no words of explanation. And now he receives insight. But instead of giving Job an easy answer, God says things like this. Chapter 38, starting at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Well, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Well, that's the climax of the book of Job. And it continues in long poetic speech to show that God is good and wise and can use evil for his purposes. Okay, so what's the book of Job's ultimate answer? What's the book of Job's ultimate answer to those who struggle with God's goodness in the midst of human suffering, especially in the midst of suffering faithful believer? It's this, okay? Here's, here's the summary. Get to know the character of God. Get to know the character of God. Stand in awe of God's greatness. The, the most significant thing you can do is develop an eye for the greatness of God. How do you do that? How do you develop an eye for the greatness of God? you read one chapter of the Bible a day, that's 365 chapters of the Bible a year. That's 3,600, I don't know math, a lot of chapters in 10 years, versus neglecting reading at all. Just that little bit, your mind is being washed over with, here is God. And you're not just reading, you're studying, you're soaking in, right? How do, you do, how do you get to know the character of God? You don't just show up to church like a consumer. You come to a Bible-preaching church and you get involved. And you serve. And week after week, the Word is washing over you. Pretty soon, you go out. And just like I see the world more clearly because of this, this is like Bible to you, right? Wow, I see the world through the lens of the scriptures. And I see the world in light of who God is. And whatever I'm bringing to... It's amazing. My morning Bible reading, I I open the word and so, like, it just pops off the page sometimes. Sometimes it's just like drudgery. Like, I'm just doing it because it's my routine. And sometimes it's just like, this is exactly what I need. 
God uses it long-term, okay? Back to Job. If you find yourself questioning God's goodness, and that questioning, there's a line in the book of Job, when words are wind, we can say a lot of crazy bad stuff in the moment. Sometimes we got to, when we're loving a person that's suffering, we got to let words be wind. You don't correct every little thing, do you? Let the word be wind. But if that questioning goes beyond a moment or a week or a month, it's a long-established pattern, we may feel like our problem is tender-hearted goodness. But according to the book of Job, our problem is pride and ignorance. We're assuming we know best and God's wrong. We need to be careful. Let God be God is the message of Job. Well, that's the climax. We return to our question, why does God allow faithful believers to suffer? Job doesn't give us any easy answers, does he? It's not like, oh, here it is. Oh, that, 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 my day is all sunshine and rainbows again. That's, that's, that's nice. Well, no, as we look at the book of Job, the word mystery stands out, doesn't it? There's an element of mystery. But instead of an easy answer, I'd suggest that the book of Job leads us to look in three places. Look in three places. Look to three things as we wrestle with this in our souls. So in closing, the first place that the book of Job leads us to look in the midst of suffering is this. Look to the heavenly throne room of God. The lesson from Job 1 and 2 is a lesson about God's glory. What do I mean? One of the worst feelings a person can have in the midst of suffering is the feeling of isolation. As though no one sees, no one understands, suffering is often a lonely experience. Even if people know you're suffering, they don't know you're suffering. You know what I mean? I was talking to a friend who has a chronic illness, and it's, she said it's almost as though, it's friends of Natalie's and mine, and we visited, she said, it's almost as though when people ask me how my health is, and I tell them, they're disappointed and they don't know what to say because they've been praying and it's not getting better. And so I just don't tell people anymore the full story. Suffering's isolating sometimes. Well, in his suffering, Job, Job lost most of his family. His wife turned on him, wasn't helpful, building his faith in God. She was hurtful, urging him to forget faith in God. His friends accused him of some hidden fault Job knew he didn't commit. No one saw, no one understood, and Job never got a peek into the heavenly throne room of God. He never knew that the angels in heaven noticed Job's righteousness and pointed Job out to God. He never knew about God's discussion with Satan and that Satan caused his suffering and that God allowed it. He never knew that God was worshipped as he was in anguish and struggled to cling to God. He never knew that in the, in the host in heaven looked 
down at Job and said, look at him. He's struggling, but he is seeking to to praise the Lord in the midst of this. What a great God you are. Job never saw that. As you suffer as a Christian, read Job 1 and 2. Look at that heavenly throne room and remember, when you feel alone, you're not. When you feel like no one sees, the heavenly host sees. Cling to him in desperation. You are not alone. Second lesson we can take with us, second place that we are called to look, look to the wise God of Job 38 to 42. The sum total of God's words to Job in these chapters are these. I know all things. I comprehend all things. I wisely plan all things. I'm completely powerful. I'm completely mighty. I orchestrated all things. And you are a finite human being. You will never understand the way I govern fully. But look to me, the good God, and trust me. Embrace mystery and trust me. Third, finally, last point, application. Look to the greatest innocent sufferer of all time. Look to the greatest innocent sufferer of all time. I'll give you a hint, it's not Job. See, Job suffered immense pain that he never would have chosen. And in the end, by God's grace, his riches were restored and increased greatly. He was given ten more kids, and by the way, that doesn't make it all better, right? But he was blessed again with ten kids. Double the riches, power, his health returned, his suffering was horrible, but temporary. But Job couldn't claim to be 100% righteous. He couldn't claim to deserve only good things. There's only one person in all of history who can claim to deserve only good things. You know, Jesus Christ is the only perfectly righteous person in all of history. Okay? Job had suffering thrust upon him. Jesus accepted the cup of suffering from the hand of his Father. He humbled himself submitted to the point of death, even the shameful death of a cross. Think of it this way, too. Job's suffering brought God glory in a single instance as he struggled to hope. But Jesus' suffering purchased atonement, purchased making right with God for the world. Job endured unthinkable hardship But Jesus endured the cup of God's wrath. So much so that he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job felt forsaken by God. Jesus was forsaken by God. Later, Job was restored to earthly riches and power, but Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, 
for our justification. And he's seated at the right hand of power in the entire cosmos today. Okay? So today we worship the one that we've been singing to with the words on the screen up here. That's why I pointed there. And who we've been fellowshipping in his name and Why we're here is Jesus, right? He is the perfect one who suffered in complete innocence so that we, the guilty ones, do not have to suffer the wrath of God for eternity. Why could Crowder say, Good God Almighty, I hope you find me praising your name no matter what comes because of this gospel? Because no matter what, comes to our lives, no matter what happens in our lives, there is reason for hope if you are in Christ. There's reason for hope. There's even reason, you know, I, I think the, uh, the definitions are a bit fluid, but I've heard it said happiness is often in the moment, kind of dependent on what's going on now, but joy can be whatever, okay? There is reason to be like the Apostle Paul, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, there was a time in my Christian life I thought church was, you know, I'd visit, you know, my grandparents' church or whatever. Church was a place where you kind of look happy and clappy. Everything's happy and clappy from up here on the... Then you read the Apostle Paul, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Isn't that beautiful? You know, you can have that. You can have that. Why does God allow faithful Christians to suffer? The book of Job doesn't give us easy answers, but it teaches us trust in this God who's good and sovereign over all. And he sent his son to redeem us out of eternal suffering. There's reason for hope even in the midst of suffering. Well, we didn't find any easy answers today, but I do hope we found some hope. Let me pray to close. Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope you've given us in him. I pray that as we sing now your praises, I pray that as we go out from here, that we wouldn't merely be happy and clappy, but maybe we'd be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Or maybe we're just happy and rejoicing and yet having a deeper joy that's way bigger than beautiful vacations and sunshine and rainbows. That there's a deep, deep abiding joy that's what our life orbits around. I pray that this gospel that you as the great God would be that for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.